Good day to you, and welcome to Fascinating. I am your host, Rick, from Planet Vulcan. My continuing mission on planet Earth to search for signs of intelligence and to encourage its spread. There's a powerful and persistent meme on planet Earth which has us Vulcans puzzled, and this is the idea that ownership of property which an individual has bought and paid for is still conditional. The great exception to the principle of ownership seems to be the belief that in circumstances where anyone is in need, whatever that means, they have at the very least a moral claim on your property. Advocates of this view call it social responsibility and have become adept at the use of moral blackmail to back it up. To illustrate how the scam typically works, I would like to use a book recently published by Chris Anderson, the curator of TED Talks, titled Infectious Generosity. Chris was a guest recently on Sam Harris's Making Sense podcast, which I frequently listen to. I would like to begin by emphasizing that even though I'm highly critical of the moral blackmail that both Chris and Sam indulge in, and of the way they justify it, I have a lot of good things to say about both of them. Both of them are providing a valuable service to all because they promote the discussion of ideas. And even though many of their respective guests and much of the subject matter constitutes Eknarangi on parade, the discussions on both of their platforms have some value if only to keep us informed about the currents of what we might loosely call thought that are presently flowing in the echo chamber on the left. And occasionally they even have guests who are not peddling Eknarangi. Chris in particular has a way of coaxing the intolerant and arrogant people he hosts, most of whom believe so strongly in their own righteousness that they believe they are entitled to run roughshod over their opponents, at least to agree that they need to make a case for their proposals. Eknarangi is a term we Vulcans have coined to describe widely held erroneous beliefs on your planet, and the concept is similar to Earthling Todd Rose's term, Collective Illusions. Todd has, incidentally, presented a TED Talk himself where he discussed the myth of average. Eknarangi is ignorance in reverse, and it means believing in the truth of things that are not true. I admire both Chris Anderson and Sam Harris for many reasons, chief among them that they are disposed to be open-minded and serious about the importance of good ideas and good thinking, even if they too are still struggling to do consistently good thinking themselves, thinking which would be rooted in the natural world and evolution. Sam in particular admittedly believes that nature has screwed up more things than it has got right during the course of human evolution, and believes he has both the standing and the wisdom to disapprove of what nature has done. And when it comes to their shared belief in the utilitarian maxim, inherited from the British ruling class tradition that the greatest good of the greatest number is the basis of morality, and that anyone who disagrees with this framing or who opposes any attempt to use this framing as a basis for polity is a morally defective being, we part company decisively. This framing is based on intelligent design thinking that is rooted in medieval times and fails to conform to more modern evolutionary thinking which takes into account the phenomenon of spontaneous emergent order. I further wish to emphasize that much of my disagreement with them is not merely a difference of opinion. 
I say this because it is a simple matter to demonstrate that many of their stated beliefs are based on a disregard for facts. The sloppy thinking I will comment on should be taken as instructive of how easy it is to fool oneself when one begins an argument with a conclusion and then looks for evidence to support the conclusion while disregarding evidence that does not support it. Such a thought process would be appropriate for a lawyer arguing in court for a favorable verdict, but it is not well suited for a serious discussion. Let's go through some of the, their conversation on Sam's Making Sense podcast. Non-controversially, they begin by agreeing that much good can be done through generosity and philanthropy. Mosquitoes and other parasites, for example, create much human misery and retard progress, and we can help alleviate these problems with charitable action. Sam then laments recent developments concerning large-scale endeavors where the stated intention was to do good in the world, such as the revolution that Sam Bankman-Fried, the founder of the FTX cryptocurrency exchange, and a celebrated advocate of effective altruism turned out to be a crook. Harris had been one of Bankman-Fried's early celebrators on the grounds that if you wish to engage in philanthropy, it is helpful to look into where you will get the biggest bang for your buck. And the strategy of earning lots of money so you can donate it, as Bankman-Fried presented himself, Sam Harris thinks is a forgivable or even laudable reason to earn money. The FTX episode and a number of other high-profile cases have, in Sam's view, led to a situation where more and more people, especially in tech and finance, he says, have cynically concluded that most or even all publicized efforts to do good are suspect, and that altruism is bunk. That people who claim to be altruistic actually have self-serving motives. So the thinking which he is lamenting goes. If you listen to Sam's podcast, you have heard him resort frequently to this form of argumentation where he puts words into the mouths of people whose ideas he is criticizing, words which justify his side of the debate, but often do not fairly represent the thinking of his opponents. I truly doubt that he has fairly characterized the ideas of the tech and finance people he refers to. It is much more likely that these people understand things that Sam does not and know more than he does about how to improve the lot of humanity. And Sam tends to overlook the fact that these presumed cynics are engaged in activities that have benefited and continue to benefit humanity to a far greater extent than do charitable activities. Sam worries that the cynicism he believes has been engendered might lead to a world where, and I quote, psychopathic Ayn Randians, who admit to no social responsibility, run rampant to the detriment of the rest of us, particularly the poor and downtrodden. If you have listened to the fascinating podcasts, you will recall that contributing editor Prego Donata wrote a review of Ayn Rand's work and gave her ideas two cheers. What on earth was Prego thinking? And here we have a teachable moment because it is a simple matter to demonstrate that Ayn Rand and her disciples, in fact, do admit to social responsibility, just not the particular form of it that Sam believes in, and an equally simple matter to demonstrate that Harris is perfectly okay with violating one of the most important and foundational norms of social responsibility. 
Prego gave Ayn Rand's ideas two cheers because social responsibility, in her eyes, consists of respect for the individual's right to life, right to liberty, and right to property. In everyday life, Sam's psychopaths are committed to civility, honesty, respect for the rule of law, and respect for the sanctity of the contract. And Sam is arguing that this constitutes evidence leading to a conclusion that these people are hopeless psychopaths. I would say that his fury stems from the fact that they are refusing to pay the blackmail he is perpetrating. Fascinating. What about Sam and Chris and their version of social responsibility? The two of them see nothing at all wrong with routinely violating the right to property, which ought to be understood as an indispensable pillar of social cooperation. But in their world, as long as more than 50 percenters 50% of voters approve of the theft, oops, I mean the taxation, and as long as this majority are motivated by altruistic intentions, anything goes. Who are the true psychopaths here? Please understand, my aim here is not to defend Ayn Rand or her devotees. My aim is to demonstrate sloppiness in Sam Harris's thinking, sloppiness that is echoed by Chris Anderson and that this sloppiness can be traced to the basic premise that they cling to, that we all have a moral duty to look out for the welfare of others. Consider the words of a famous professor of moral philosophy by the name of Peter Singer, whom they both admire. Singer shows how acceptance of this moral duty leads to the conclusion that the only way to live a moral life is to give away everything you earn except, for a bare minimum, that would allow you to match the circumstances of the most impoverished person on earth. Sam and Chris acknowledge the logic of Singer's argument, and I believe we should all acknowledge the correctness of the logic. But when reductio-type logic, proceeding from the premise you have chosen, leads you to an absurd conclusion, which it clearly does in this case, and if you wish to observe proper scientific method, You are obliged to reject the premise and search for a new premise that does not lead to an absurd conclusion. But Sam and Chris are okay with ad hoc fixes to Singer's argument, which they think permits them to hang on to the flawed premise, which results in the call for self-sacrifice. The fixes they propose mostly amount to line-drawing exercises where they believe they can justify the faulty premise by saying that you only have to follow the imperative of self-sacrifice just a little way. And when you think about it, hasn't Singer himself drawn an arbitrary line when he said it was morally permissible to continue living as long as you sacrificed almost everything? Wouldn't the argument, without this arbitrary line Singer has drawn, lead you to the conclusion that you could be an even better person by consuming nothing at all? You could argue that your continued existence might be justified by the fact that you would continue earning and contributing, but let's face it, you would still have to be judged to be morally impure because you are still doing something for your gasp self. Fascinating. Sam and Chris are clearly oblivious to the notion that there is more than one way to fulfill social responsibility and oblivious to other crucially important points as well. Sam states repeatedly that you cannot fulfill your social responsibility without putting the interests of others ahead of your own interests. 
a statement which reveals that he does not understand the concept of of a positive sum game on a deep level. Or, if he does, he must be capable of double-think. He and Chris blithely state that the world is divided between net-takers and net-givers, and that without being a net-giver, you cannot think of yourself as a good person. But an analysis of positive-sum games reveals that one's actions can benefit oneself and benefit others simultaneously. Good grief! I am reminded by a line of a line by a young Goldie Hawn on Laugh-In, the TV show where she got her start by playing an adorable dingbat. Her line was, If we have been put on earth to serve others, what are the others here for? Simon and Chris agreed that there are only two sides to the social responsibility argument, with a little room in the center, and that the future of human progress depends mainly on philanthropy. The salacious pleasure they display when they label wealthy people in particular as selfish borders on obscenity. They go on to discuss a recent study by psychologists where 200 people are given $10,000 each, which they were not expecting, and who then had an opportunity to do whatever they wanted to do with the money. What happened in this study, as well as in other studies that had been conducted with smaller stakes, was that two-thirds of the two million dollars that had been awarded to these 200 individuals was spent generously. Chris, at this point, makes another comment which reveals profound confusion in his thinking, which is that no rational agent theorist would have expected such an outcome. In truth, if you were to query people whom you might classify as rational agent theorists, you would be hard put to find a single one who would have been surprised by the outcome of the study, because they understand, as Chris evidently does not, that value is ultimately subjective. I suspect that Chris's response is rooted in his belief that rational agents would place zero value on the practice of generosity, like psychopathic Ayn Randians, and spend all of this largesse on satisfaction of their own narrowly defined wants. Chris and Sam both need to bone up on the subjective theory of value, which leaves wide open what it is that people might find subjectively valuable, including generosity. And has been argued over and over in the fascinating podcast series, most people are hardwired by evolution to take pleasure in benevolent action, a point on which both Sam and Chris and most everyone else agree. As an aside... Kudos to Chris for his further valuable insight that people are furthermore hardwired to take pleasure at seeing the benevolence of others in action, and that's one of the main themes of his otherwise rather silly book. So just what is it that Chris thought would be regarded as surprising in the outcome of the study? I suspect that the only ones who were surprised were those who are of like mind with Chris and Sam and don't want to surrender the erroneous belief that there are lots of people out there who are not hardwired to take pleasure in the effects of their own benevolence or in witnessing the benevolence of others. This sort of doublethink is very confusing to someone with a functioning brain. Are people hardwired to show regard for others, or are they not? I don't see how you can have it both ways. And why do they believe people have to be blackmailed into doing something they are inclined to do anyway. 
But the most egregious error, amongst all the errors that both men make, all of which are fatal to their conclusions, is their belief, stated repeatedly, that philanthropic action occurs without any trade-offs, that it is an unalloyed good that doesn't cost society anything. Or at least it only costs something for the selfish people who choose to commit their money to something other than philanthropy. And that these people's selfishness undermines any claim they might have to consideration in the equation that defines human well-being. Chris at one point actually states explicitly that the huge sums of money that are controlled by the very wealthy are locked away and thus inaccessible for philanthropic uses. As if all of this money has been stuffed under a mattress. But their money is not stuffed under a mattress. It is not in a money bin like the one where Scrooge McDuck does backstrokes through his money. And it is not locked away. And if you are worried that the wealthy are wasting huge sums on worldly pleasures for themselves, we should note further that even the most extravagant consumption imaginable by these wealthy people is insignificant in relation to their total wealth. So where in truth is their wealth if it is not locked away? Their wealth is invested productively where it will earn them a return and by coincidence, if not by intention, the investment in productive assets benefits everyone. It makes labor more efficient and productive, and this increased productivity results in higher pay and shorter working hours. And even more to the point, there is now more stuff to go around as a result of this production. It's a mystery how both Sam and Chris have so badly missed the point here. It must be that in their haste to hang on to the right to condemn what they see as unforgivable selfishness, they have reached the clearly untenable conclusion that expenditures on philanthropy have no opportunity cost. But it ought to be clear without having to think too long and hard that all other things being equal, an extra dollar spent on philanthropy is one less dollar spent on investment in productive assets. The question, even from their point of view, then becomes... Which, of that mar which use of that marginal dollar produces greater benefits for mankind? The answer could be that it is philanthropic expenditures that would do so, but the answer could also be that the better option would be further investment in productive assets. But we are being too generous with Chris and Sam by just letting them get away with saying that greater benefits for humankind is the ultimate guide to morality. This is the same slippery slope as the one which leads, which leads to the notion that self-sacrifice is the pinnacle of moral action. In truth, your moral obligations are satisfied completely if you have simply obtained your wealth by legitimate means. Surely there are cases where philanthropy makes sense from most anyone's point of view. There is much misery and suffering in the world that could at least be alleviated by charitable action. And we should note that wealthy people routinely engage in philanthropy, and it must be at least partly because they care about misery and suffering. Trying to induce people to increase their charitable activities by shaming them or by appealing to their better nature, or by taxing it away so that the use of the money is decided by someone other than those who, to whom it rightly belongs, is, to put it mildly, not an unambiguously clear path towards making the world a better place.
And we should also remind ourselves once again that the enormous improvements in the lives of most earthlings over the past few centuries were not entirely due to charity. In fact, I think that a clear-eyed assessment of the causes would show that would show that charity has played and will continue to play only a relatively minor role in the improvement. The major role has been played by scientific discovery, technological innovation, the evolution of market economies, and respect for the rights of the individual. Sam then engages in further doublethink, expressing two mutually exclusive ideas within the space of a few minutes. He rightly concedes, and bless him for this concession, that most people who receive high incomes receive it because of the value they, that they have created and contributed in the world. But a few moments later, he and Chris are both talking about how the recipients of these high incomes have an obligation to give back. Wait, what? Didn't you both just acknowledge that they've already given back? when they fulfilled their contractual obligations to everyone while they were creating the value that led to the flow of income in their direction. Sloppy, sloppy, sloppy. But wait, there's more. A discussion about justice led to a mention of John Rawls, famous for his highly influential 1971 book titled A Theory of Justice. In this book, Rawls discusses how we might create societal rules which would lead to a social structure that would be just. If you're not familiar with Rawls's work, his most noted idea is the veil of ignorance, which he proposes as part of a thought experiment in which people choose a set of rules for how society will be structured as if they were in an original position and had the capability to create whatever set of rules they thought best. The veil of ignorance is a method of eliminating bias and refers to the hypothetical creators not knowing where they personally would end up within this structure, so that the temptation to favor themselves by the rules they create would go away. But there's a problem with taking Rawls's prescription too literally, as he himself cautioned. He did not believe that there ever was or ever could be an original position. And most importantly, in my view, he emphasized that individual liberty must always be an overriding concern in any society where justice is the intention. The problem that Sam and Chris do not see is that in nature, and I must emphasize that nature includes humans, structure is not primary. What is primary is function. And the way that society functions is what leads to ever-evolving societal structures, which are always temporary. I'm afraid that Sam and Chris have taken the idea of creating a societal structure too literally, and seem to believe that the only thing standing in the way of fulfillment of their dreams of a static societal structure is opposition from psychopathic Ayn Randians. It's long past time for Earthlings to jettison the nonsensical idea, whatever its source, which says that doing things that benefit yourself and your family is the root of evil. I invite you to listen to the next essay in the fascinating podcast series and to have a look at the fascinating YouTube channel. Please recommend Fascinating to your friends if you find the lessons from nature in these essays personally valuable. Thanks to Track Tribe for allowing use of their song, Helium. 
Live long and prosper. Savor your experiences. Treasure your memories. Anticipate a happy and rewarding future. And respect nature's wisdom.